you expose an athlete to specialized training means before they've earned the right to do so, you're robbing them twice. Because once, it's just you're dropping a bomb on them and they don't have the ability to handle it. And two, when you do need that stuff, what are you going to rely on? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another Cheeky Midweeky where we are making strength and conditioning not boring anymore. And we got Kier on the show today, folks, so you know it's not going to be boring. Kier, first question. What was the craziest thing you saw athletically in your entire career as a strength and conditioning coach? Firstly, that tagline, the king is dead, long live the king. Uh, let me think, athletically. Um, small Troy. So we had a, a thrower, uh, William & Mary, Troy Earwood, who mm-hmm. when the, the AD at William & Mary and in her infinite wisdom decided to cut the throws program swiftly ended up at UNC where he belonged. Uh, one time I was messing around with uh, a guy that I was getting ready for pro day and we were testing his broad and small Troy. Uh, it's actually on my Instagram. If anyone wants to go look it up, he walked up dead cold, no warm up, no nothing and jumped uh, 11, seven. <laughs> at 220 pounds so this guy he came in when he was a freshman 18 years old uh i want to say he was 210 in the september by the end of his freshman year he was pushing 245 no change in body fat uh i personally witnessed him front squat 440 for eight he had a 40 and a half inch vert, and I'm pretty strict at testing verts. Uh, he could dunk a basketball when he was 14. And uh, if you, <laughs> we used to joke that his idea of a balanced diet was a cheeseburger in each hand. And I, he, he's such a fucking good dude as well. Super funny. And, um, you know, there was like 500 athletes at William & Mary. So I was, I was talking to another athlete I was like, fuck this guy, you know, just ridiculous numbers, blah, 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 blah. And she goes, you know, I think I know that guy. You know, I was in a a dorm uh, the other day and there was just this ripped black guy walking around in a silk robe, open at the waist, wearing a do-rag and a chain. And I was like, it sounds like him. Uh, Okay. So when you had like anybody that listened to that, they're like, okay, he's a freak athlete. Did we're not going to dive too much into the strength and conditioning stuff of it, but to stick with it at the very least, how did that affect how you were programming for him? Like, did you still go super highly specific? Were you just general? And I'm asking for any of our listeners out there that are like, all right, I have a kid like that. How do I handle it? I think, you know, it's one of these things where generally athletes, the higher the outputs they have, the higher the price of, of, more the higher the cost of misjudgment or misadventure. So, you know, when you're learning to drive in a Ford versus a Ferrari, you know, there's probably going to be a lot more tears if you mess stuff up with the uh, the Ferrari. So I think one is you have to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, but two, you know, if you if you look at some of James Smith's older stuff, he would talk about how, you know, general general preparation, general means serves to basically get the athlete to clear certain physiological barriers to entry. So, for example, you could look at 
we'll use it the sport of of discus which was his event that was his specialty you know to throw the discus you must be you can't pick anthropometrics you have to be this tall you have to have roughly this wingspan you have to have this level of muscle mass you have to have this level of strength if you're lucky enough to have picked your parents correctly you mm-hmm. might have come out the womb doing that which means well you know you actually do get to pass go and collect 200 dollars without doing any of the work so to be completely honest he got to do the special sexy stuff from day one because he was so strong because those barriers to entry had been cleared. Whereas, you know, a regular sloppy genetic, nothing like me has to do a lot more to even get close to clearing those barriers before I earn the right to do the sexy stuff. Are you robbing that athlete twice then? Like you've talked about where they're getting it, they're getting the stimulus that they didn't need. And when do you, when do you have that? ace in the hole to be able to be able to play later on you would do with a regular human but the fact is, you know the the argument goes with the bondage stuff which is if you expose an athlete to specialized training means before they've earned the right to do so you're robbing them twice because once it's just you're dropping a bomb on them and they don't have the ability to handle it and two when you do need that stuff what are you going to rely on uh down the line He's actually the opposite of that. You'd be robbing him by being like, okay, get the broomstick out. Let's concentrate on your squat, stuff like that. He hmm. comes in in his first year front squatting 440 for eight. Does he need more um, general training? No. He, he has a huge general base of physical preparation. The difference is I had nothing to do with it. It was all thanks to jeans, and I'm not talking Levi's. <laughs> so it, it, it would be counter. It's a very, very rare thing where you would actually be robbing someone by doing the the general boring stuff taking a quick break from the show to tell you about our deal we have going on right now in december if you sign up for fundamentals level one you will get one free year at strength coach network that's right sign up for fundamentals our 20 hour long form education course that has information on every topic in strength and conditioning that will make you a better strength coach regardless of the field that you're in Not only if you're a strength coach, personal trainer, athletic trainer, physio, this is for you because all the education about progressions, regressions, motor learning, speed, agility, jumps, you name it, we have information in it. So sign up for Fundamentals, get a free year at Strength Coach Network. Click the link down below. Let's get back to the show. That's interesting because I've definitely had athletes like that in my time that have actually forced me to continue to get better where because they are so advanced, it's like, fuck, I have to. I have to keep leveling up to be able to keep the stimulus for them. Because like you said, I don't want to rob them twice and you have to be able to be responsible to get them bigger, faster, stronger, and and better at what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I pulled some, some fairly spicy stuff out for him and uh, KJ. So KJ Kelly cook, he ended up transferring to Purdue for his, for his master. So these guys are both, you know, power five level uh, athletes, KJ a bit older. So they kind of partnered up. Uh, to train together and I thought you know they they used to really push one another so I remember yeah when when Troy was a freshman I just like I said you know how strong are you what's your experience with lifting all that kind of stuff they told me and I was like right let's do some triphasic stuff and I got a video of Troy at 18 years old he had he held a below the knees RDL with 405 pounds for 30 seconds (laughs) again up on my Instagram and uh, like you said it's like when you already you know, back squat, double body weight for reps. And it's just like a snooze fest. It's like, what more are you really going to get from, you know, more back squatting? It's like, you almost have to find ways to, 
think outside of the box to try and stress them. Would you, would you then, or did you then do any specialized exercises in terms of the throwing stuff, putting them in different positions, or did you then work with the sport coach, the throws coach to work on that technique and find time for him to do it in the weight room? Or how did you work that out? We did work together. So just by virtue of the space and the fact that Alex Haycock, shout out to him. He's, you know, super open-minded, super, super clever guy. But, you know, when, when they're outside, it makes sense to do the med ball throws and stuff like that outside, uh, especially when you have a large volume of uh, sport practice going on. And then it was mostly a case of, you know, I, I kind of like the, I don't think it necessarily works for the reason that people think it works, but like the French contrast. So but just looking at, you know, different positions, different uh, regimes of muscular work, making sure that we're, you know, at least getting closer on that dynamic correspondence to the, the competition exercise than a traditional uh, strength and conditioning barbell exercise. <clears throat> that makes sense. Um, looking back on any of that stuff, would you have, what would you have then changed then? Like, at, with him looking back with any of the knowledge that you have to then again, just answer any questions for our members and listeners out there that do have those freaky athletes, what would be the overarching message to them? Yes. You talked about the Ferrari and not wanting to break it, but how would you then fine tune it so you could win the race with the Ferrari? Oh, man, it's tough. It's tough because I almost think you don't actually get the true lesson or the true value from working with athletes like that. Now, bear in mind as well, I think I, I coached him really for one year because after year two, I dipped in and out. I went to football and then by year three, he was gone. And you've got a hyper adaptable, hyper responsive 18 year old. And, you know, all of his, you know, his stories are going up by meters per year. So it's like, what do you learn from success? Oh, here's a bunch of shit that I did that worked. You almost learn on the flip side. Then what about when you were uh, most recently with, I'm sorry, go on. What about when you were most recently with the guy that was getting ready for the rugby? I forget what it was, but you were training him as a professional player. Yeah. Obviously a highly skilled athlete. What's then the difference there with somebody that's maybe trying to improve at the later stage of their career. It's, you know, if you, Mike Guadango loves to quote that the training that benefits the novice and the training benefits the elite are very, very similar, but it works for different reasons. So when you are a novice athlete, you have to, by virtue of the fact that, you know, training is a novel stimulus to you and you're hyper responsive, for the reasons that you alluded to with Bondachuk, you want to be giving them a large, menu a large variety of general exercises so that you're you know effectively earning the right to train with intense specialized exercises down the line and it's like you know squeezing the the, the toothpaste out the tube you just push in any direction toothpaste comes flying out the end that's the relationship between training specificity and transfer with a novice athlete then once you've secured that base of physical preparation the only thing that will lead to um, increased transfer to the competition exercise is progressively more intense, specialized exercises with less and less variety. 
and you can look at like extreme versions of that in like uh bulgarian weightlifting bulgarian weightlifting at the thin end of the wedge is like five exercises it's the classical exercises plus the back squat plus i don't know maybe the front squat however when you get to team sport athletes at the elite level is there any physical exercise that you can do that is going to make them a better player no no exactly all the improvement comes from is becoming a higher level master of your sport being the phd in your sport refining your skills refining your tactical management of the game plan psychological preparation all that kind of stuff so if it isn't the stuff that moves the needle and there's limited hours in the day limited energy all that kind of stuff the onus should be on reducing the physical physical preparation to anything that doesn't detract from that stuff and doesn't interrupt it and makes them feel good. <clears throat> Is that how you, you figured look, out that? It looks remarkably okay. like the, the beginning Sorry, of the career. Going. Well, you know, it looks remarkably like the beginning of the career, which is, you know, it's a lot of general exercise and you, you want them to feel good. Because, you know, when you're in the mid-stage of your career and you're trying to increase outputs via intense specialized exercise, the chances are you're also going to be a fringe player or a bench warmer and you can afford to drop that bomb on yourself, especially when you're in your late, te- late teens and early 20s. Now, this guy who runs into people for a living and he's 29 and he's had five knee surgeries in the last five years, am I doing 40-inch you know, depth jumps and he, he weighs 275 pounds and he's five foot 10? No. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, we've got two weeks uh, of work to do in California. Fingers crossed I don't break you and fuck you up, which I didn't, you know. <laughs> What's up, strength coaches? Taking a quick break away from the show to let you know about our membership site. Not only do we at Strength Coach Network put out the Cheeky Midweeky, but we have a membership site where you gain access to a video library and a members-only forum. Inside the video library, you will have access to over 170 different lectures, which equals over 400 hours of content. Inside of these content, it is every sport you could think of and every topic in strength and conditioning. In our members-only forum, we have career advice and we have topics in strength and conditioning where coaches ask each other questions and we help each other inside the network. You can try the network out for 24 hours for $1 if you are not a member. Click the link down below and you will be able to check us out. Hearing you talk about that made me think about when you you talked about the fat-tailed curves with agility being more important than speed and strength. Like, how did you figure that out or did somebody teach it to you? Or like, where did that come from? Because that was such a major game changer for me. Um, And if, go ahead and elaborate on it too for any of our listeners out there, because I've tried to and I don't want to bastardize what you originally put out there. So it's kind of like a... I'll, I'll, you know, name drop two books here. One is the the Farnham Street book of mental models. The other one's Game Changer. So, one of the mental models they talk about is first principles in in the Farnham Street book, which is, you know, what's what's the first thing that you have to answer that informs everything else that follows. Okay, so you take that first principles model. And apply it to Game Changer, which is what Fergus Connolly does in Game Changer, and say, all right, okay, what does success look like? And you can say, right, it looks like winning the game. What does winning the game look like? It looks like scoring more points than the opposition. 
and we can split off into attack and defense. But if we just say, right, attack, what are the typically predisposing conditions that lead to points being scored in attack? Creation and, uh, creation and conversion of un uncontested scoring opportunities. What are the ways that uncontested scoring opportunities can be created? Force, speed, misdirection. Okay. Force, kick in the front door, speed, run around them, agility, or, you know, effectively for the purpose of this conversation, misdirection and agility are synonymous. How do you make the other guy think that you're going that way and you go the other way? And typically it might be that you go that way, he follows you and you have to quickly readjust. So if you look at all three of those, force is evenly distributed. Everybody's big in the NFL. Everybody's big in international rugby. Everybody's strong. You're not going to find a team where they're twice as strong. Same goes with speed. Even less trainable than force, you know, on every team, there's you know, two or three super fast guys. There's five to 10 fast guys and there's everybody else. Evenly distributed. Force and speed also, uh, they are finite. You get tired. Okay, so the longer the game goes on, the more you're forced to rely on those two things, the more tired you get, the worse you get. I would hazard a guess. I can go back and check the stats. You can absolutely find between the top and the bottom team more than a 2x difference in defenders beaten, yards after contact, uh, line breaks, and all that kind of stuff. So if you have three ways of achieving those outcomes, two of them are evenly matched between teams, Process of elimination says, well, actually, it must be in the third. And the ability to misdirect an opponent, it's, I would much rather run at a hole than kick the front door down or run at a hole than have to burn all my gas to get around the outside of somebody. And if I'm incorporating perception, action, coupling, creative problem solving, all that kind of stuff, that doesn't, you know, the brain doesn't get tired as quickly as the body. So it's better to have that misdirection, that agility in abundance so that you can hold back on the force and speed that you do have rather than be, you know, a one trick pony that burns it very early on in the game. For anybody that's listening to this and they're, they're like, okay, I agree with you. How do they get their sport coach to agree with them? Because it is sexy to make somebody miss, but of the three, nobody's really bragging about that. Everybody wants to brag about being big and strong or what's your fly 10. Like, how can we help coaches understand that and apply it for their situation? Uh, OODA loop. So again, you know, Fergus talks about this in Game Changer, you have the OODA loop, which is all, you know, decision-making, all problem solving is based on these four steps of, you know, uh, observation, which is gathering information via the senses, Orientation, which is deriving meaning from that information. Decision, which is you draw on your experience, your interpretation of the significance of what's going on around you. And then you select what you think is the most appropriate response to arrive at the outcome that you want. And then you have to execute it as quickly as possible. So for example, if we're in a sporting situation and you know the, the primary way that you derive information in field sports is via the eyes in you know other sports like 
grappling, for example, I think there's a huge tactile component of how you feel your own weight and pressure from, from opponents and stuff like that. But in field-based sports, it's mostly via the eyes. So for example, if I look up and I see someone um, tracking to my left, I'll be, what I'm going to derive from that is, shit, this guy's going to try and beat me around the outside. Right? <laughs> and I'm, I might be looking at, where's he looking? What's the position of his hips? Where's the ball? In, in, you know, in which hand is the ball? Uh, I might also look at how many players does he have in support? Are the players in support on the left or the right? Are they deep or are they shallow? How many people do I have around me? How much space do I have between me and the sideline? All these different things. And based on that information, there's two things going on. Synthesis and analysis. Analysis is what's going on. So what I just described to you. Synthesis is, what do I do about it? So based on the information I see in front of me, I know that you're carrying the ball. And basically, if we use rugby, I'm the rugby guy, you can run, you can pass, you can kick, and that's it. And there's certain rules that you can do. You can go left, you can go right. And those are your options. And based on my experience, my preferences, what I think you're good at, everything that's going on around us, I'm going to come to a conclusion. Justin's probably going to do this. Based on this, I know that my response has to be this. Fuck, I better hurry up and do it now. Now, everything I just described to you, only that last part is physical. So if you've got something where three quarters of what's going on is not physical, the idea that you're going to solve that problem purely via physical means is fanciful. And what's going on is you're running through that loop at the same time that I'm running through that loop. Oh, that guy is tracking to my right. I have a bunch of space down the sideline. He has no players on his inside shoulder. I have support on my left and my right. What's he going to do? What should I do? Okay. And they say, whoever closes their loop first wins. So we're, all, we're constantly in sport, creating this model of reality, reacting to it, and trying to respond. But if I close my loop faster than you, you are now working off my model of reality. You see, you see me tracking to my left? Fuck that guy. I'm going to cut off my right foot and go left. Oh, okay, now I need to go through that loop again and react to you now cutting to my right and so on. What's up, strength coaches? Want to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about our sponsor, Team Builder. Team Builder is your one-stop shop for online training platform needs as a coach. With Team Builder, you're going to be able to program for your athletes, whether they're in person or remote. Using Team Builder, not only will you be able to program for your athletes, but there are special features such as the leaderboard and locking training with wellness questionnaires. With the leaderboard, you can have an exercise performed that day, whether it be a lift, a sprint, or a jump, and scores can be updated in real time and projected on a TV in the training. Wellness questionnaires can be used at the beginning of training, and your athletes will have to fill them out prior to being able to train. This ensures that as a coach, you're being able to collect quality data before the athletes train. So, if you're interested in Team Builder, click the link down below and find out more information let's get back to the show anybody that's listened to us this far they're like all right if they a didn't know who you are they're getting a better understanding of or if they didn't know who you are they're impressed with your knowledge of sport if they did know they're like they're continuing to get blown away with it more for both of them tell them more about who you are and your background like what got you into strength and conditioning and then eventually out of it like what was your entire entirety uh getting into you know this field uh, 
low self-esteem and lack of athletic ability. <laughs> you know, I wanted to be a pro athlete and, you know, by the time I was 15, I realized, you know, five, five foot 10, 180 pounds, white, unathletic, not brave, not skillful, not tactically uh, refined, not disciplined, none of that. But, you know, fuck, I'm good at science. So I just figured what's the closest I can get to the field combining all of those traits together and with a, a slight, deviation to a psychology degree uh, which I used tearing my ACL as an excuse to quit I went back and did sports science in 2005 graduated 2008 um, realized I was a horrible coach spent two years wandering in the wilderness like Christ to get an unpaid internship and since 2010 I've well I'm no longer a strength coach but you know I started in professional rugby in 2010 uh, I did that for eight years, a bunch of different countries, moved to the States in 2018, worked in college football, did that for two, three seasons, and then went all in on Strength Coach Network. <clears throat> handsome fellow bought it from me this year. <laughs> so before I dive into that, you talked about 2005 sports science. And for me hearing that, like, First of all, I was in the Northeast. I didn't know that. I, I, I think there's a misnomer in, or not misnomer. There's a there's a thought in America that the uh, East, so you know, Europe and Australia, is ahead of us in terms of sports science and sport. Because 2005, I don't think there even would have been a major of doing this. Do you agree? Like, is is the North America actually behind, or is that just an impression that we have? It's both. It's both. You know, the the term kinesiology is just interchangeable with sports science in the UK. So uh, that's all it was. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not going to wish that I had my time again, but it was a horrible program to prepare coaches to work in professional sport. So, you know, at least a part of me not being able to work for free, even for two years, is a result of my degree program. So they were very much interested in pumping out researchers and academics more so than they were practitioners and coaches uh, uh, which is you know i think that's like a general flaw within higher education and strength and conditioning which is why strength coach network was was created <clears throat> um, but yeah i think there's you know there's this natural tendency to always be looking over the other side of the fence and you know wishful thinking like oh my god they're so much better than us um, and I've been guilty of it for sure, but you know, people would talk about, oh, you know, oh, the Soviet methods, the Soviet methods. I want to say it that I could be wrong. The height of the Soviet Union was a billion people. That's like saying the American methods. Now, they, they did have centralized sport and there were ideas that rose to the top and stuff like that, but you know, Natalia Verkashansky, I met her and she shat on her own father's ideas and said, no, nah, he's wrong about this, he's wrong about this, 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 this. So people think. The Soviet methods is Verkashansky, Bondachuk, Soyunov, Matveyev, all these guys just be like, right, this is the method. And then they you know, distribute it to a billion people. It's not the case. Um, with that said, I, you know, I do think that, and I experienced this in Argentinian rugby, when it comes to the Soviets, the same things that make for a horrible society namely centralized planning, top-down, all that kind of stuff. Fuck, it's good for sport. It is good for sport. 
you know, you look at East Germany, East, and you know, drugs aside, everyone took drugs. East Germany yeah. punched so far above their weight in terms of the gold medals they were able to produce for the size of the country that they are. And that's because a top-down system eliminates most of the issues that you would experience in North America and even in professional sport in Europe, which is, oh, he's our player. No, he's our player. No, he's going to do this sport. No, I want, I, you know, I want this amount of time with him. He's going to do this practice. Whereas in those countries, they, there's one guy at the top, he says, fuck you. No, he's not. He's going to do this sport. He's <laughs> going to be in this place at this time. We're going to put him there. We're going to close the door, throw away the key for 10 years, win a gold medal, and you're going to be rich. And if you don't, you're ashamed to your nation that it's not it doesn't make for happy people it's not good for society as a whole it's really really good for making gold medals so i think that is a lot of what ties up the success of the soviets throughout the 60s 70s 80s and beyond and that's why i think north america has always looked to the east when it comes to uh europe and australia i think you just have to look at what sports are most popular in those countries and what disciplines most lend themselves to those sports so for example australian rules uh football is a game where most of the good guys have vo2s in the 60 to 70 milliliter per kilo range it's played on a cricket field and it's incredibly fucking attritional you're probably going to get pretty good at monitoring and conditioning <laughs> you know if you're you know operating in you know professional sport in soccer and rugby in europe busy guys that play internationals will play 50 games a year and you know people are sweating about 17 games in the nfl like oh my god we had to play an extra game you're probably going to get good at designing you know uh macro sorry meso and micro cycles how do you plan the training week how do we when the, the off season is two weeks long right how do we tactically periodize so that we get every minute that we can with the ball at the feet while still checking off this box, this box, this box, and so on? Look at the sports that America loves and excels at. Bigger, stronger, faster, kick in the front door, be as big as possible. Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button so that way you get notifications of when more content like this gets released. So click that like and subscribe button. And with that, let's get back to the show. What? predominates in american strength and conditioning bigger stronger faster all that good stuff so there's just this natural gravitation towards certain topics i think as a result of culture as a result of what sports are popular and stuff like that and there's something that you can learn from everyone <clears throat> switching gears a little bit anybody that does know you you've told the story about the credit card getting declined and maybe that was the origin of rugby strength coach and starting to write programs was it and if not what was the actual original i need to start making money and selling things and not working for a club a university or a team the eventual you know i need to not work for a team it didn't come until the very end um you know i've said in a bunch of places or a bunch of you in different uh, platforms that actually is one of the biggest regrets that I have. Having seen the progress that I've been able to make since leaving three years ago, I'm almost upset with myself that the, the, the big thing that I wanted, the carrot that was dangling in front of me, it required me to work for somebody else and to be told what to do and to operate in a hierarchy where, you know, 
I have a disability, which is I'm, I know more than everyone else. That's what I believe. <laughs> so it, it, I said it tongue in cheek, like Eric Coram's one of the five people that I can work for in sport. But really, I do, I do think that, you know, there's a reason I worked for Eric and it's because he's intelligent and I knew he would teach me and he would push me and all that kind of stuff. And I, I can't say that about many people um, in the field. But, you know, when it comes to the need to make money, it's just a coming together of a bunch of different things. Um, I think there are those key events in life that have a habit of leaving a mark on you. And if you time perfectly, like to the week, basically, congratulations, you're an adult now, join the workforce with the biggest recession to happen in almost a, a century. I can't remember what year you graduated. I graduated in 2008. So basically the world economy oh, nine. Was, I was a year after up, you blowing up in 2008 and naivety on my part for sure. But I was like, of course I'm going to get a job in professional sport. Like I'm going to fucking, you know, just look up, look at my degree. And it didn't happen. You know, I have three interviews off the bat, absolutely fucking bombed each one of them. So I'm kind of at a, and you know, with the job market as it was, I think I had one temp job that I got fired from. Um, this is going to shock you, but they complained about my sense of humor. Um, anyway, so by chance, I started working for myself as a personal trainer, always with a view to, well, I'm not going to be a personal trainer. I'm a, I'm a strength and conditioning coach in sport, and I'm just doing this until I get the opportunity. So I was never making plans in that regard. Um, but you know, it was two years before I got an internship. So anyway. By the time I go down to do this full-time internship in London, it's the most expensive city in the country, completely unpaid. And there was just this natural transition. There were people that I'd been working with back home in person. I had been working with local rugby teams just to get my reps in. They're like, hey, you don't have enough experience in sport. I'm like, fuck you. Okay, I'm going to volunteer for this team, this team, this team. And I was literally doing that. So I trained with a bunch of players from those teams, some of them guys that I played with. And as I moved away, a bunch of them, they took pity on me and they're like, hey, you know, I want to keep paying you for progress. So that was, it wasn't called rugby strength coach at the time. We can talk about that. But, you know, 2010, that's when I first started to do that kind of stuff. And I did not have a clue. I don't feel like I have a clue now. I really didn't have a clue then. Uh, but it just kind of evolved from, from there. And, you know, that's 2010. Now I almost got lucky in my regard, in my, in that regard, sorry, in my career, because, you know, 2010, first year unpaid, you're, you're almost small and unimportant enough not to cause problems. So you're insulated from politics and all that kind of stuff. No problem. 2011, pretty much the same case. 2012, I got a promotion to head of academy. Uh, so I ran a hundred athletes below the first team. And that's quite a distraction when you're 26, 27, you're like, you're probably going to shut up and enjoy your job. And as well, even in professional teams, if you're in the academy system, you're a second class citizen. So no politics then. I moved to Australia and I got the best job of my career. So very quickly, now there was, there was a bad job thrown in, which I don't need to talk about, but that was when I started working with Argentina. So you're getting to work with a top tier international team three years into your career. You get to fly all over the world. You get to do these training camps. You get to be on TV. You get to train XYZ athlete. And because they've paid so much money to Exos, you could say that, you know, the sun was a light bulb. And they'd be like, what wattage? You know, you could say whatever you want. And they'd be like, yeah, we're doing it. 
best, best team ever. So really, I didn't have to eat too much shit until I got to Japan. And then I was like, fuck this. To give you an idea about Japanese rugby, there was a guy that they had signed. He'd won everything, literally everything in rugby, including super rugby. He'd just won it. He came to Japan. Uh, he was being paid, I think, $75,000 a month, which is, it's not American money, but it's nothing to sniff at. And a Japanese coach in his second year of coaching ever tried to teach this guy how to pass and catch. That's the level of idiocy that you deal with over there. Constantly being told, you know, this is not good enough. This is not good enough, blah, blah, blah. Basically being told how to do my job by people that don't have a fraction of my experience or uh, qualification. And that's when I started to get to the, you know, fuck this. Like I'm going to get myself to the point where if, when, when I quit or get fired, I'm not going to feel it. And I actually, you know, I'm sure they would have, I told my agent into year two of a two-year contract, I said, do not renegotiate this deal. I'm, I do not want to do this anymore. That was when I'd kind of been like, I've been to the World Cup. I've gone to work in Japan. I've done everything I wanted to do in rugby within reason. I'm still not happy. Fuck, you know, I'm going to go work in the NFL. I'm going to prove to everyone that I'm the best in the world. Then I'll be super happy and everything will be okay. So kick the can down the road. Now I'm going to chase that. And then once you get into the American college system, if that doesn't put you off working for other people, <laughs> I don't know what will. It is... Uh, there are lots of people within the American collegiate system who I love and I've loved working with. It is a poisonous, virtue signaling, empty, backstabbing shithole of an environment. And Samantha Hugie, the AD of William & Mary, did me the biggest favor of my life. She tipped me over the edge to never work for anyone ever again, ever. And that was... October 2020, and here we are. <clears throat> Hearing you talk about no, your illness was knowing more than everybody. How were you able to subdue that? Because earlier you were able to talk about how well you were able to work with the throwers coach. Like, what was it about them? Was it because that person was so well knowledgeable, or you know, looking back on that? I, it's kind of tongue in cheek. I. You know, it's funny, actually. So the, the job that I didn't want to talk about because it was such a fucking disaster was uh, Sydney Roosters in the NRL. And money to burn. Richest rugby organization in Australia. I remember they used to put on a, a, a lunch every Friday for us before the game. And it would be like 10K a week. What? So they, they were doing, you know, a quarter of a mil in lunches. It, it was, <laughs> we were living the life. Anyway, they had enough money to keep these clinical psychologists uh, on staff. So everybody in the organization, you had to go speak to the psychs. They would, you know, do psychometrics. They would hand the information up to everyone above you in the management. This person's good at this. This is their personality. They work well with this, blah, 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 blah. So they can you know, effectively get like a psychological understanding of the people in their organization. And I think it's, it, it must be rare for them because they pulled out the thing and they said, explain this. <laughs> so I was, you know, it's out of a hundred. I don't know. I was like a five for self-esteem and a 99 for desire to compete and self-improve. So what I was also very high was self-awareness. 
but you know like i tell my wife tell some people that i work with which is just because i'm aware of my flaws doesn't mean i give enough of a fuck to fix it so i i'm i'm subject to blind spots and bias and make mistakes like everyone else but when you go into a uh a situation like that with you know alex haycock which is i know what i know and by that point in my career i was smart enough to know what i didn't know and you know you catch more flies of sugar than you do with shit if you're going to a sport coach and be like hey i'm a complete novice at xyz in your sport tell me what you would like and then you throw in oh bondachuk and hey i've been watching this video of werner gunter and oh man weren't these weren't these east germans crazy oh look this was the last guy to set a world record with the glide rather than the rotational technique people will open up to that and then you establish that working relationship anybody listening right now i mean if if he if he can do it based off what he just said like there find a way to get that done too but that leads into my next question do you think it helped you or hurt you that spite of i'm going to prove these people wrong i'm going to get it done looking back was it a good thing was it a bad thing you you can google this angelina jolie has a trashy tattoo that translates to that which nourishes me destroys me and it actually ties into my first mentor, Ian Taplin, who I still, you know, I think I spoke to you last week. He said, you're, you know, unchecked, your greatest strength always ends up becoming your greatest weakness. Because you rely so heavily on it, you tip over into making mistakes and you haven't plugged the holes and addressed the weaknesses that aren't your strengths. So everyone tends to have a set of traits that, fuels them but you you still need to be balanced and keep them in check so no question there have been times in my career career where being combative being derisive not taking things seriously my sense of humor upset people stuff stuff like that the question is on balance would i have got to that stage without those traits and would the quality of my work suffer? So, I'll, you know, he's not in that system anymore right now. Des Ryan, Arsenal Football Club. After the 2015 World Cup, he invited me in to present to the staff at Arsenal Football Club. And he said, basically, in an email back and forth, he said, you're obviously too controversial that you would never end up working at Arsenal Football Club. And also because you, you're vocally against the Olympic lifts and we do the Olympic lifts. And I felt like saying, but you have heard of me. <laughs> so there, there's, a, there's a cost to that. Um, fuck, I'll let history decide whether it helped me or not. Speaking of history, do you think it's good that you like the amount of things and countries you've seen and, and all the experiences you've had? Like, again, looking back, is that something that you wish you did or didn't have? Is that something that you want for the future for your son? Like looking back on it, like that's a lot of life experiences in a short amount of time. I think just my mindset in general, I think, you know, there's a whole lot of world out there and I'm very, you know, eager to try it all and do it all uh, in the time that I have, you know, um, it was some of it was luck 
you know, but I think, you know, to an extent, the behaviors that you engage in can make luck for you. For example, just these, I'll, I'll give you, I'm getting a little bit off topic, but I'll give you a few examples of things that, you know, I can look back to and say, this was the event that did it. Right. So 2010, I'm an intern at London Wasps, completely unpaid, working with the Academy. So the lowest of the low. And I'm like, clearly I should write a blog. You know, <laughs> people need to know about what I'm doing. In 2011, this American guy messages me through my blog. Hello, my name is Brent Calloway. I work for Athletes Performance. Would you ever be interested in working in a professional league if rugby comes to America? Yeah. Now, the next year, I went to China for them. The year after that, he said, hey, we've got an emergency where this guy that's working with Argentina had to go home. Can you be in Buenos Aires next week? Yes, I can. If I don't do that, I don't go to Japan. If I don't go to Japan, I don't go to America. And it's all from me having a blog in 2010. Uh, likewise, I, 2009, I, one day as a commercial personal trainer, I was like, well, we don't have a prowler, but prowlers are fucking hard. So I switched off the treadmill and said, all right, push that like it's a sled in a, in a commercial gym. And people were like, fuck, this is one of the hardest things I ever did. I was like, someone should write an article about this. Nobody had ever written an article. So I wrote an article for Elite FTS and uploaded it. Then this guy messaged me. He goes, hey, I still speak to him as well. He goes, hey, I'm an editor at Muscle & Fitness. Can, we, can I interview you and start an article on this? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I said to him, you know, I have all these questions about, you know, Soviet training because I thought the Soviets had the answers, right? Can I ask you about these, uh, these methods? And he said, yeah, of course. Listen, I don't know really, but I know a guy who does. And this guy, unfortunately, has since uh, died, Bob Eilenfeld. And I'm emailing all these questions. He said, listen, you, you could ask me all these questions, but why don't you just get them from the source. I'm going to an event in February in Richmond, Virginia called Central Virginia Sports Performance Seminar. If you meet me in New York, I'll drive us down. And I was like, okay. So I flew to New York to meet a complete fucking stranger and sit in the car with him for six hours to go down to an event in the city where I now live. If I hadn't done, you know, if I hadn't written that article, would I be here? Who knows? That's a great point. How do you, hearing all of that, the first thought I had, and I'm assuming our listeners are hearing that too, how do you live so comfortably, at least making it look that way, with ready, fire, aim, like not having a plan and just being like, I'm going to do it. Like, where does that ability come from? The impending oblivion of death. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> no, I, listen. I think... Deep within us, there's, there's obviously this, from an evolutionary perspective, every human being within reason has evolved to fear rejection like the plague. Because when you're a monkey and you shoot your shot, and it's typically going to be in a mating context, and you get rejected by the group, guess what happens? You die. You know, you're either going to get clubbed to death or you're going to get rejected by the group and you're going to die. So there's almost like this hard wiring, this chemical wiring where you are taught to fear failure and rejection and what other people think about you uh, to such an extent that it will actually stop you. Um, and 
like I said, like, I don't think I'm going to be here for a long time. So my desire to see how good I am and to prove everybody wrong and to try these things outweighs any hesitancy or fear um, that I experience. Doesn't mean that I find it pleasant. I find it deeply unpleasant, but you know, it's not going to stop me. Um, and then I, you know, one thing that I've started to appreciate with age, which is everybody is so busy being the star of their own movie that they probably don't even notice to take care uh, about what you're doing. And if they do have the time to do so, they're probably not leading that purposeful of a life anyway. So you might as well just fucking do it. That's fantastic. We've been teasing it. You've, I mean, obviously people know that you've got money moves. How did that all start? Where is it now? What, like, talk about it more so people can learn about it. You know, I don't need to tell you that. I think there's a, there's a few different uh, factors at play um, within our industry. I was about to say, um, yeah, within what? With, within our industry, which is, you know, with all things, the market tends to set the price. Not all things, most, you know, the overwhelming majority of things, the market tends to set the price. And the two biggest things driving um, the price is supply and demand. If demand is fixed or, you know, increasing very, very slowly and supply is very, very high and increasing rapidly, the, the wage or price pressure is downwards, not upwards. So that's one thing you have to contend with. The second is that, um, as a, well, as a result of that, working in living conditions within strength and conditioning are very, very hard. So the, the cliche of like, yeah, you know, getting money will solve your money problems, but it won't solve all your problems. But it, it would be great to not have those problems to deal with the, the kind of higher, higher level problems, right? The second is that there is almost no relationship between how hard you work, the quality of your work, the impact that you make, and the reward that you receive within the high school, college, and sometimes even the pro sector. Okay. If you look at what drives success, if you were to create in a, in a lab, the most knowledgeable, accomplished, um, diligent, has the numbers to back it up coach who nobody knows, no network, no nothing versus kissed on the cock network, hype man. Maybe he's given some kids rhabdo. Mr. Iowa, you know, <laughs> you are still going to lose to that individual. So I'm not saying don't work hard at your job. Don't work hard on being a technician. But given the choice between relying on a system like that to solve your money problems for you and, you know, how easy is it to get fired as a strength coach? You can have a winning season and get fired. I know someone who won the premiership and got fired. So there's no rhyme or reason to job security. Considering all of those things, do you want to sit there like a waiting duck and have your fate decided by a coaching change that you have no influence over? To lose out on more lucrative job opportunities just because you don't have the right second name, you don't know the right people, that kind of stuff, no matter how good of a practitioner you are. And when you're in a job like that, 
you're not going to get pay rises based on your performance. You're going to get pay rises based on your seniority, uh, annual increases in proportion to inflation, and when people fuck off and you move on. That's it. Or you can go do something off your own back today. You can start making a difference today. And you can do it in such a way that the reward that you get is proportional to the effort that you put into it, how sophisticated, how efficient you are in your approach, and how innovative you are. And you're an example of this. I guarantee you've done more to impact your earning power in the two months that you've been running Strength Coach Network than you would ever have experienced in Towson. And it's not to say that I'm not good at strength and conditioning. You know, I, I went to do the, the camp with the, the rugby player that you mentioned. I thought, fuck, this is easy. I could go back and do this tomorrow. It's rather like, I think the highest value that I can deliver to coaches might be more in terms of that business and that money stuff. Now, now that I have a little bit of credibility with it rather than, hey, here's how you throw a discus further. There's, there's value in it. There's utility in it for sure. But maybe now, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll tell you another thing just personally for me. The most recent Central Virginia Sports Performance Seminar. So that was like, that was my 10-year anniversary. 10 years. In, you know, in there was, I think it was a first-year assistant uh, never done anything strength and conditioning in intern. I'm like, fuck, oh my God. You know, Mark McLaughlin. I saw Mark McLaughlin in the crowd and I wouldn't speak to him because I was embarrassed to say hello to him and he would shrug me off. 10 years later, I was there with my wife and she said, hey, did you notice that every single person that presented that weekend name dropped you in Strength Coach Network? And I was like, oh yeah, okay. And then Yosef, I, I think I bought two, two books and he gave me two extra books. Stack of four books like this. Haven't read them still. And I just thought, it's time, you know. Like, I don't, I don't even not, not care, but like, I'm not excited about this, but I am looking at ways of like, oh, what's the best way to connect on social media? What's the best way to, to track with marketing? You know, what's the best types of outreach, all this stuff, different kind of stuff. And I think it's much, much easier to be successful, to enjoy what you do uh, when that's the mindset rather than be like, oh, you know, I should probably read those books. Why should strength coaches care about all uh, the social media and the connecting things that you just talked about? Like, why, why does that matter? Why, like, they don't want to be a, a salesman. They don't want to be, you know, all the things that they're going to say. How do you handle those objections to what people say to you when they, you know, are more interested in what you have to offer? Well, you know, if you make the assumption that the field of strength and conditioning is not your savior. It's not coming to look after you and make sure that you, you and your family are going to be good. It follows that you need to work for yourself. If you are going to work for yourself, you need to do business with some people. So there's these just facts within business. The amount of money that your business is ever going to make is your LTV. How much do I make per customer multiplied by how many customers do I do business with? Those two numbers determine how much money your business generates ever. Within the number of customers that you do business with, it's going to come from how many people do I talk to, you know, and what proportion of those people am I sufficiently persuasive enough to that they want to do business with? So how do you reverse engineering those numbers? Push up your revenue. One is to be more valuable and to do more business with people over a longer period of time. Two is to get more customers, which means that you need to be more persuasive at converting them into customers. And two, you need to reach a higher proportion or a higher audience of people so that you get more distribution. Now, 
you could say, well, you know, I hate to be salesy. Uh, I don't like social media. It's not my personality. And you could go and drive to the house of every prospective person in your audience and be like, oh, let me do a sales presentation. Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about that. Can I read my blog post to you or that kind of stuff? <laughs> and you'll, you'll run out of hours. There's not hours in the day. Social media, electronic media in general, but social media, it's like having a YouTube channel is like having a TV station that you own. Yeah. Having a Twitter, yep. sorry, an X, having an X feed is like having a newspaper that you own. That is your megaphone. That's your chance to put your message out to the world to reach a higher number of people for no additional effort. If I have 100 people that follow me on YouTube, a million people that follow me on YouTube, there's no additional effort on my part. So that's a way to reach people at scale. And then based on how persuasive your message is and how good your offer is to get them uh, into becoming customers, and that is the, the first step to having a long, productive business relationship with them. And you do well as they do well. That's why it matters. So how do you, how do you help coaches do that? Solve problems. Well, how do, how do I help How do you, that? exactly. So how do you, how do, you do that? Again, without, without giving the keys to the kingdom of what you oh, charge. No, you but like, I, you know, I'm happy, happy to talk about it because it, you know, it's one of these things where I'll, I'll tell people exactly what to do. But it's like... It's a lot trickier than that. Zach Daycamp talked write, about that on his episode. He's like, dude, I literally wrote for fucking Batum what to yeah. do in movement over maxes. He's like, yeah. I still had people asking me like, well, with this front score, he's like the number of people, like I fucking yeah. told them exactly yeah. what to do. So I'll give you my, he's like, yeah, I yeah. tried writing movements over maxes without telling them exactly what to do. And I realized how hard it was. He's like, I gave them everything and they were still fucking asking questions. Yeah. It's, the analogy I use is you could go tour Gordon Ramsay's kitchen right now and be like, right, you saw the recipe, get, you know, get, get cooking. <laughs> um, but, you know, basically I think there, there are some key principles at play, like what I just described to you. You would be shocked at how long it took me to realize like, oh, you know, LTV, number of customers, distribution, yes. conversion rate, you know, all this kind of stuff. There are those principles at play that you have to understand. There are some kind of like best practices about how you go about each step of the way. For example, having a platform in place to track how much money does each customer bring into me? How am I converting them? How many people am I reaching? How many, you know, all this kind of stuff. Am I putting my message out there in such a way that it's likely to, you know, sail with the wind of the algorithm? Things like this. How am I being strategic? How am I validating my assumptions? Because you know everything that we've just talked about hinges on the assumption that people actually want what you're selling. Yeah. You better find out the answer to that before yeah. you start building things like yeah. that. So that's that's why we do flash sales and and so on. And really, it's just like a, we've refined money moves. So I think what I'm guilty of is like I wanted to over deliver relative to what was promised. So I kind of laid it out like here's everything. And honestly, people aren't ready for that. Right? So money moves in January is here's how to make the first $1,000 in eight weeks or less, train heroic, your own social media, that's it. And honestly, I feel like, let's say, you know, you do that over eight weeks, you repeat that five times. Do most strength coaches make $5,000 in side income a year? Probably no. not. That's going to be a big, big improvement for most strength coaches. And then I'll happily sell them level two when it's built on how to do the rest. <laughs> 
where would people be able to find this then? Callmekir.com, K-E-I-R. Uh, they can navigate to that homepage or they can go callmekir.com slash money moves, one word. <clears throat> one of the questions that I, I had as I was listening to you say that, like, where did you go and learn that stuff? Just to give like any of our listeners that are, you know, continue to int- like, what's the background and where you started to learn that, um, you know, LTV and all these terms, because a lot of our strength coaches might have been like, wait a minute, what the fuck are these words? Like, how did that happen? I uh, affectionately call it BitTorrent University. So <laughs> I used to steal a lot of shit off the internet because when I started at Wasps, you know, I was, I think it was going like an hour plus each way on the subway. So I would just download audiobooks, listen to them, download audiobooks, listen to them. And I, it started off with the self-improvement, you know, for real. The same one that we all did as a straight coach. Yeah, yeah, you know, Tony <laughs> Robbins, uh, Jim Rohn, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then I just think it's like, if someone told you, you know, outside in the garden, there's a million rocks. Underneath one of them is 10 million bucks. You'd be like, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. So it's just like, you read a book. Okay, I need to learn more about this. Maybe this is a secret. No, it's not this. No, no, no. And just kind of follow my nose and, and keep reading stuff like that. I think, honestly, I'll tell you what. I will post up today for anyone listening to this. Go callmecare.com slash books. I will make a list of every book that I can think of that I've consumed that people can check out. Fair. We're going to add that down to the rest of the page. It's not going to be pretty, but <laughs> yeah, I'll put it up. <clears throat> We're going to add that to the rest of the links to anybody that has made it this far. Is there anything you, anything else you want to leave everybody with? No, I'm just grateful for the opportunity, brother. I like Appreciate this one. You didn't make me uh, do the cards like I did with you. <laughs> no, no cards yet. We'll, we'll figure something out. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Appreciate it.